Hello and welcome back to Critical Thinking, a Critical Role rewatch podcast. I'm John Bates. I'm the executive producer and host for this podcast. You can find me on Twitter at John A. Bates. And I'm joined by Jack. Hey guys, I'm Jack. I'm on Twitter at AltF4Gamers. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm on Twitter as JThomas411Mania. And we are here to put on our fancy art critic hats and take a look at the Critical Role web series as, from a literary perspective, as if it were a written piece of art or a piece of literature. So um, Critical Role, for those of you that may not know, and if you don't know why you're joining in on episode three, um, is a web series hosted by Matthew Mercer in which K, in, in which he and a group of his voice acting friends and coworkers uh travel through this wonderful realm he's created role-playing on uh, Geek and Sundry's Twitch channel for our pleasure and amusement. Um, and as with any and all pieces of art, we have taken it upon ourselves to critique it. Um, we Our cast includes Orion Akaba as Tiberius Stormwind, Laura Bailey as, Vex, as Vexalia, Talzin Jaffe as Percy, I'm going to call him Percy because I can't say his full name. Uh, Liam O'Brien is Vax Hildon, Marisha Ray is Keyleth, Sam Regal is Scanlan, and Travis Willingham as Grog Strongjaw, and as I previously said, Matthew Mercer as Dungeon Master. Episode 3 is titled Strange Bedfellows, and it aired, I don't know, I, I don't know why we haven't been doing this previously, but I figure, you know what, it'll be fun. It aired uh, March 26th, 2015, so that you guys can realize how far back we're going almost uh, two years almost two years from now or however long it has been since it's been that date since you're listening anyways previously on critical role the party was hired to go into Craghammer, the dwarven city uh a dwarven major mining uh city uh seeking lady kima of vord a half-lying paladin uh of of bahamut um uh, she was sent on a vision quest seeking evil that it was apparently brewing beneath Craghammer and went on her own to seek and destroy it. She hasn't been seen for many weeks or months and the party has gone to Craghammer to try to locate her at the behest of, uh, of arcanist Allura Vysorin. Um, they received, they got into Craghammer and received information that she had disappeared into the mithril mines underneath it, uh, and secured passage into the mithril mines through uh, negotiations with Nostock Gracepine, the owner of the mines, uh, <clears throat> in addition to, well, at the request of finding the source of these, uh, mutated monstrosities that have been attacking the dwarves from the Underdark and destroying it, or getting rid of it at the very least. They agreed to do that, and because they agreed to do that, they were granted passage in the mines to try to find Kima. At the end of the last episode, uh, an intellect devourer had blasted Grog, reducing his, in his intelligence to zero and leaving him catatonic and clinically brain-dead. Uh, as they attacked uh, a pair of Duragar that had the intellect devourer with, her, with them, capturing one of them. So, the story begins with Grog unconscious. In a subterranean cavern with a deep underground river, Grog has collapsed face down on the ground and is drooling. Uh, all but one Duragar has been destroyed, and the rest of the party catches up with, uh, with Grog and the others that have gone across, which I believe was Vax and Keyleth. Um, uh, Vax and Ke or, sorry, Vex and Keyleth uh, yes. slap Grog across the face a few times. Uh, they get no response, and Scanlan, you know, Scanlan suggests that someone draws a dick on his face. Um, 
Percy tries to check him out uh, with a medicinal check, but there's no physical damage that they are uh, uh, able to determine. Um, Tiberius uh, explains uh, verbatim, it's clear that when that brain thing hit Grog with its zapper thing, that it rendered him unconscious. Uh, he assumes that it was a magical creature based on the attack. Um, and uh, Vex and Scanlan thank Tiberius for his explanation. Uh, Keyleth thinks she might have heard of a spell that can cure Grog, but she'd have to pull out her books and relearn it. Uh, um, Grog farts slowly on the ground. Um, And at this point, we've got, I would say, some very, very good characterization, um, fantastic bit on the, the actor's parts. This is, this is classic show don't tell just in these three characters' initial approach to their fallen comrade. You know, I mean, Percy immediately goes science boy, uh, starts investigating Grog, starts investigating the creature, looking for clues. Well, he's he's very problem- or Tiberius. You said Grog. Grog wasn't investigating anything. No, Percy was investigating Grog, is what I was there saying. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but, you know, I mean, Percy is, is he's he sees a problem, and his immediate plan is... Let me approach this as in scientific a method as possible. Try and solve it as best I can. Tiberius just starts showing off what he knows and what he assumes and begins theorizing and, you know, guessing at the probability of what has happened here. And Keyleth is the one who steps up and is like, okay, I might have something to fix this, but there's that obvious recalcitrance in her voice where she realizes she's not fully prepared for this particular circumstance and it's going to take her a while to get in a position where she can actually hopefully help him out Mm -hmm. but you know just very good characterization these are key elements of each of these three characters that we'll see reinforced over time again and again and you know grog farting is a quite a a intricate part of his character as well (laughs) we'll drop that as number four yeah And a nice little bit, although there's, I mean, there's plenty of that in this early part, but a nice little bit of comic relief as well to take a bit of the edge off the fact that one of their party members is in a coma. Yep. Uh, So the party begins, the party then, because they can't get anywhere with Grog, decides to interrogate the surviving Duragar. It's female Duragar, bald with a nest, with nasty, pale, sunken face, clouded eyes, no visible pupil, uh, yellow, gnarled teeth. Uh, Matthew, Matt uh, goes out of his way to detail the sort of the difference between this kind of dwarf and the dwarves they've been uh, dealing with, just sort of to add that sort of monster horror aspect to the Duragar. Um, she's coughing up blood, has been wounded. Scanlan suggests healing her, but, uh, the twins disagree, uh, basically saying that they'll heal her after they, after she talks. Um, and so they start, uh, interrogating it. Vex asking, what did the Durgar do to their friend? And the Durgar responding that it, well, they didn't do it. It was the intellect of ours, uh, thing. Um, what did the brain do? Or they specifically calls it the brain. Uh, what did the brain do to our friend? Took care of your friend. He's gone now, all dead inside. Um, and at, at which point, there's a bit of a uh, there's a bit of a confusion from the people interrogating. Uh, suddenly realizing they don't actually know what they want to ask. Um, as Vex asks the rest of the group, "What should I ask?" Uh, Percy well, suggests that, that sort of goes into. Um... It plays off Vex with the fact that that 
she's the only person who actually speaks the language, but she's clearly not the um, like this would have been this would have been a a good role for for Vax because he's very very urban, very uh, roguish, um, and it plays very nicely into the ranger aspect of. I I don't really know what to do when I have to interrogate a person. Yep. Um, it also kind of plays into sort of the the impetuousness or the the impulsiveness mm-hmm. of the of the twins. Like the, the two of them jumped into the interrogation with no prior plans, no prior experience, and no real ability to interrogate. Uh, but just gonna you know give it the old college try. Um. So Percy suggests asking how to fix it. Uh, to which the Durgar responds to bury their dead weight. And uh, we get another one of these series of people doing actions on top of each other um, without previously communicating it, uh, which, you know, works very well for sort of describing this group. Um, Percy fires his gun off in the distance and uses the hot barrel to cauterize the shoulder wound um, in a very rough way, while Tiberius uses Mage Hand to poke her in the face. Just to sort which of is, irritate her, which in Percy's uh, Percy situation is wonderful foreshadowing. Um, we haven't really encountered these characters up to this point being particularly dark at any period. We've had we've had moments. We've had Scanlan being re- almost enthusiastic about the dead goblins. And a couple things like that. That's a particularly creative way to torture somebody in in a fantasy setting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, looking back at it now, I, I I remember watching it at the time and not even thinking anything about it. Looking at it back at it, now, that should have been a warning sign. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, kind of was, but it's it's also that it's also that sort of it's. It's one of those weird things you do when you're playing D&D where you make choices that don't necessarily make sense in a sane world, but in the in the moment do make sense. Oh, um, yeah. And that's, that's right. the heightened reality nature of fantasy storytelling, period. Right. There's, yeah. a, there's a level of meta-awareness that a player will bring to a game. But if we're looking at this as something that is... Is a is a work of art as a piece of literature. The fact that these are people playing a game is less relevant to the fact that I I agree with Jeremy. This is an yeah. intended or not. This is an excellent moment of foreshadowing to things that will transpire in Percy's existence further down the line. Yes, that might be accidental, but if we're looking at this as something that was written, pretty effective. Yeah, no, especially uh, if you know how Percy's character arc is going to go, definitely an effective piece of foreshadowing. Just that casual. I, I think probably the best part about it was the casual nature of it. Mm-hmm. Um, was it wasn't he wasn't like, oh, I I have this idea of torturing this person. I'm gonna no. He's just like, I shoot my gun and I take the hot bit of metal and I shove it into the wound to cauterize it. Right. <laughs> Because just, because he's he gets into very he's he's the character frequently goes into just detached problem solve mode. Yeah. And, um. So while Percy is cauterizing the wound and Tiberius is flicking her nose, uh, Vax continues to ask. Uh, um, Vax asks, "Who do they work for?" 
to which the Duragar basically got, uh, uh, spouts off a few bits of rhetoric uh, and saying that uh, the party will all be harvested for Kavarn, uh, which is the first sort of proper noun they've gotten out of this Duragar. Because um, as, as far as it's been hinted at up until this point, you know, Kima is investigating or pursuing a threat you know it's all been very vague terminology you know are we talking about a person are we talking about a force are we talking about an organization are we talking about an army you know it's like it could have been anything this is the first kind of solid piece of intel they get yep. on what's going on under craghammer so this is <laughs> this is this is a plot turn moment yep uh they ask who Kavarn is. Durgar explains Kavarn is the one who rules these caverns, the one who guides us to take the surface back, and also is the one that tinkers with flesh with the flesh things and makes the uh, creepy zombie monsters. Um, they ask where Kavarn is located, and he says deep. They ask what Kavarn says, and he said, or she says, "You'll see." Um, they try to press the Durgar for more information. Uh, but the Duragar is basically like, yeah, I'm already dead, regardless of what you guys do to me, so whatever. Alright, um, so here's a question. Mm-hmm. Did the Duragar hint at what Kavarn was with those answer, with that answer? Yes. Okay. Do you think that was intentional? No. Okay. I don't think that was intentional. <laughs> I, I think that was, you'll see... And, right. and then knowing knowing what we know and knowing what you listeners will find out later, uh, it, it's definitely another bit of foreshadowing, but it's very unintentional. It's more dramatic. It's more dramatic foreshadowing the audience knowing what happens later than it was intentional foreshadowing of right. the. It's not meant as no. a clue specifically, no. right? No. But it is um, a really well done that whole that whole conversation is a really well done way to use this, you know, red shirt uh, bad guy, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. uh, to deepen the storyline, build up a little bit more mystery while still revealing information. We now have a name. We now have a little bit of a hint of who it is from a character who could have easily died in that fight. Yep. Yeah. That was a nice, nice little use of, of narrative there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you're taking, you're taking what could easily have been a throwaway moment and infusing it with a lot of narrative significance Yep, for both the players and the audience. Yeah. Um, it continues on. Uh, they ask about Kima. The Durgar says that, uh, they have seen Kima. She's dead, and it basically says she's dead. Um, Vax drags her to a cliff edge while Vex continues to interrogate her. Um, um, the Durgar continues to say that Kima is dead, that even though Vex Vex is pretty certain that the Durgar is lying, calls them out on calls them out on it, and sort of indicates that we'll throw you over the cliff. Even though this Durgar has already indicated that they don't care um, what they do to her, uh, you know, which is you know, that's a party trying to get any at all any bit of information they could possibly get out of it. Um, Durgar says they have her, regardless of whether or not she's still alive, and so they slit her throat and throw her off the cliff. 
And yeah, that was, was a nice moment. That was a nice moment there that, again, sort of accentuates the differences between the two twins. Because Vex and the communicator, and it, maybe it's just because she was the commu- pursuing the communicating, but kept giving opportunities for the Durgar to do something to to at least make the death less painful, or at one point even said, let you go, or other stuff like that. And it almost felt, it always almost felt to me like Vex wasn't really in the, was coming from a slightly more good perspective. And then once they have all the information, Vax is just like, Gah! yep, because that's Vax. Mm-hmm. Slip throat, throw body off cliff. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so the party breaks for the night. Uh, Scanlan uh, takes the Umber Hulk, takes an Umber Hulk head, puts it on a stick and plants it right outside the camp to as a warning to others. Um Vex loots the bodies, uh, finds a gnarled bleached bone, which Tiberius uh, learns is a wand of magic missiles, and gives it to Scanlan. Uh, Keyleth casts anti-life shell and begins studying. Um, while studying, Keyleth notices a fresh but well-carved symbol on the wall above the fire pit. She doesn't know what it signifies, but she takes an impression of the symbol with a paper from her spellbook, and um, when Vax and Vex take the watch, they also notice the symbol but don't know what it means. Uh, during Tiberius's watch, he discerns that it is a symbol of Bahamut and uses it as and used as part of a protection ritual. Uh, Tiberius tells Scanlan that the symbol is a good thing and that Bahamut is nicer is nicer of the two between him and Tiamat, who is a total asshole. Uh, they reason that Lady Kima came this way and inscribed the symbol. That's one of my favorite moments from the earlier part of the episode because it really it's a nice way for. Matt to expand the setting uh, by introducing religion in a narrative fashion for the first time. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, we know that there there are deities. We had, although she hasn't shown up in show at this point, but we had Pike, which is a cleric, and all that kind of stuff. But this is the first time that religion has really been introduced in a tangible fashion. Tangible fashion that informs the characters and the world in a greater fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it starts out as this very nice sort of mysterious moment where yep. once again, you know, just by a just by a vague description, you know, Mercer is raising the tension of the scene and then brings it back down as soon as somebody comes around who actually knows what or can recognize something's something significant, you know, cuz cuz you can you can feel sort of the the tension and the pressure as they begin to go back and forth during keyless studying and when vax and vex wake up you know and then once tiberius recognizes it there's sort of this little sigh of relief that collectively it's like okay we're not camping under something that's going to kill us you know yeah um and it's it, 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 that's actually a, that's actually a pretty common GM tactic as well. Oh yeah, and 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 so and in, in some instances, any other type of storytelling uh, thing of taking the time to describe in detail a mundane activity in order to raise tension. Um, in film, you see it as the slow pan or the slow zoom whenever a character goes to do something 
and like say open a door and they don't know what's behind the door and the camera just slowly creeps up on the door as the actor slowly takes the handle and then focus on the turn of the handle you hear the lock click and they open the door and it's and an empty closet it's a closet yeah it's like <laughs> and then you close the door and there's the monster right. yeah because they let the tension built the tension let the tension go then remove the source of tension only to oh my god there's the there's the brand new thing to to build the audience up calm them back down then make them shit themselves right. um as as the as horror directors will say um and you know and mercer mercer likes to do that he he does that quite a lot and we'll see more it. and more instances of that over the course of this uh podcast well, and he does it right here as well, you know, because yep. you've got this mystery. The mystery is then solved, and then there's a rumble in the ground. Yep, because as they finish their discussion, they feel a rumble in the ground. Yep. Um, they decide to alert the others. Tiberius uh, waking everybody up with some water in the face, thanks to persistent digitation. Um, and as everyone wakes up, the rumbling stops. Um, Keyleth uh, prepares a ritual to heal Grog. Uh lighting incense and setting out an idol of pike uh and uh caleb begins the ritual sprinkling earth from her home around grog closes her eyes and attunes herself to the earth around them scanlan tries to convince the girls that a kiss might revive him vex obliges she thinks it helped as caleb completes the ritual grog's eyes begin to clarify and life returns to his face the party except tiberius cheers grog gives caleb a big hug and pours her a goblet of ale the group toasts Grog, and Trinket nuzzles him happily. Um, now, now this is just the summary that I'm reading. Notes that Tiberius didn't cheer. Narratively, I don't know that there was a there was any sort of acknowledgement of that. I don't know that it was necessarily a point that needed to be made. Uh, unless, do you guys think anything of that? Honestly, as I was watching this episode, no. Um, Orion spends a lot of this episode somewhat distracted. Um, and, you know, constantly trying to plan the next two or three steps ahead. Um, he's that type of player. So I don't know if that was an intentional oversight on his part or whether that was just something that he wasn't around for, although he does castigate Grog a little bit, uh, Uh, during these, during these scenes. Um, so, you know, it, it may very well have been that, you know, uh, that Orion was playing Tiberius as somebody who feels like, okay, yeah, well, we got him back, but he kind of deserved what he got. Um, I, I In my mind, I think it was more that he was preoccupied with trying to figure out what that rumbling was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that was something that seemed like a very immediate threat, and then it went away, but that doesn't mean it's not, that doesn't mean it's gone. Yeah. It's, cer- it's um, certainly not something that I even notice or noticed or would have even thought of if it hadn't been mentioned in the in the plot description. Okay. Uh so uh looking to pick up on Lady Kima's tracks, uh they once again find fl- signs of fleeing in the direction from which they came. Uh partially decomposed goblinoid corpses and drag marks similar to those found in the mine. <clears throat> The party moves to the outskirts of some huts. Uh, Vax and Vex stealthily creep up to the nearest building, and they see the buildings have been smashed and find more corpses. The rest of the party approaches slowly. As Tiberius moves closer, the light emitted by his staff reveals even more bodies, some of them dwarven that look like they were partially eaten. 
As one of the bodies has a finely carved uh, leather armor, uh, Vex notices that some of the goblin bodies have a uniform wound, a punctured wound in their skulls. Whatever made the wound appeared to remove what was inside the skull, as it was mostly vacant. Um, For me, this was very cinematic in in the description, mm-hmm. and as everybody's playing, you know, you can almost see the camera doing the whole slow pan through the cavern with this sort of weak, flickering light falling over one, two, three rows of these goblin bodies, you know, just scattered around with these, you know, gaping holes in multiple, not all, but multiple um, to... To just and it's highlighted so that the the reader or the viewer sees this is not normal. Something yeah. really scary is basically eating the brains out of its victims. You know, yeah, um, it, and, and it's it was it's, very effective description. I thought it's also a classic staple of horror film and horror oh, yeah. sto- and, and horror storytelling, where you take uh, you take the mundane and then you pervert it. And then you yep. take that perversion and do it one more time. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you have a, you have a village, uh, you know, a small underground village, which is kind of creepy by itself, but you know, it's just a village. Then as you go through it, you find, oh, well, it's been the first perversion. It's been broken, and there are corpses around. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that so obviously something came through and killed a lot of people. Then maybe there was a fight. Maybe there was a war of some kind. But then you get the uniform wound of something that has removed their brains, which is that second perversion takes it a step deeper. And at that point, you know, you begin filling in the blanks. Oh, this wasn't a war or a fight. This was a massacre. Mm -hmm. Right. Something came through here. Something was hunting. Yeah. And I think that if you're going to, I think narratively, sometimes when you establish something as a threat, it's much more effective. And, you know, you you see this happen all the time in modern media. You don't meet the monster first. You pretty no, much always yeah. meet the victims first. Exactly. Yep. Because, um, because if you meet the monster first, you know, it might be scary or surprising or disturbing in its physicality or something like that. But if you don't know what it can do to you versus which, when you already know what it can do to you and you're being forced by the plot to continue towards it anyway, much more effective in terms of building the, temp- uh, the, the tempo and the tension. Well, and, and, in, even... and, in, and in this case, not only did you meet the victims first, but the victims... Seemed to have been the monster first, which Truth. I find, which I find is a is a more is an even more effective uh, method of setting up the 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 big bad. It's like you know, oh, he, these guys are obviously the monster. No, wait, they're victims of the actual monster, right? Which but elevates we're also, that creature. We're also talking about a particular type of monster, which is goblins, and. Let's be honest, anybody familiar with fantasy stuff knows goblins are the lesser of the hierarchy of of villain things. So it works not just in monsters, but these are the these are the weaklings. Yes. So it it gives whatever did this a particular aura of not only are they particularly threatening and particularly horrific, but there is an almost bullying, sadistic quality to it. So it does a really good job of creating that image in your head of, without even knowing what it is at this point, unless you've 
played enough Dungeons and Dragons, um, of of what this creature might be. It's a really nice nice way to set it all up. So Vax recalls from his teachers in Singorn that there are beings that steal victims' brains and eat them. Um, and he's pretty certain that whatever did this is much worse than the intellect devourer that they encountered earlier. The party discusses defensive options, but ultimately chooses to just proceed cautiously because they can't really, they don't really have much they can do to stop something that can rip your brain out right now, other than not get seen. So, up ahead in the distance, as they continue on, they see a moving light source. Vex tells the group to be quiet, um, and they see a large group of humanoid figures that are moving away from them. Vax and Vex scout ahead, and upon reaching the outskirts of the goblin village that they were just coming through, uh, they see a crevasse with a rope bridge spanning it. Uh, the humanoid figures are traversing the bridge, with the, and with them are three dwarven miners. Uh, Vex gets the carpet of flying out from their bag of holding. <laughs> she, Vax, and Scanlan fly over the bridge. And here we see Vex, uh, Vex's first hint of her obsession with flying. <laughs> which comes around quite often later. <laughs> yes. um, and and though we don't know it yet, her obsession with stealing from other players. <laughs> stealing from other characters. Um, so, uh, they maneuver over the crevasse and they see a long, thin, trickling, they see long, thin, trickling streams of molten lava thousands of feet below. On the other side of the crevasse is a temporary-looking shanty town for thirty or forty Duragar and other larger creatures, and a tunnel is made. And, it, and there's a tunnel directly opposite them on the other side of the encampment. Uh, they swoop under the bridge into the crevasse, and the crew look for another passage but don't find any. Scanlan decides to invisibly slip into the camp to follow the Duragar with the dwarf hostages, while Vax stays near the bridge, and Vex goes back to get the others. In the camp, Scanlan sees that there are two trolls and two ogres inside, and that the Duragar are preparing for war. All of them, you know, all of them have the same dark visiony, white pupilless eyes, uh, and they have a raised wooden platform in the center of town, where six guards in blackened plate armor stand. Uh, two figures approach the platform from the stone barracks, one a Duragar wearing similar armor to the guards, but with silver and gold scrolling and wearing a long, dark purple cape. And a scar across his cheek, uh, and that has a and has a sort of a gnarled gray beard. Lots of lots of attention to detail in this particular Duragar, you know, sort of setting them up as some figure of importance. Mm-hmm. Because and and you see it like, you know, other the the other Duragar have three four words to describe them, uh, right. whereas this one right. actually has a little miniature paragraph describing him. Um, on its back uh, is a gargantuan scabbard holding a two-headed sword. The second figure is very tall, lanky, wearing long black and purple robes, and a hood obscuring its features. It doesn't walk, but it drifts above the ground when it moves. Um, it reaches with its arms, and the Dorgar turn towards it uh, and turn towards it. It beckons loosely in Scanlan's direction. Um, one of the dwarves, one of the dwarf captains, is led up to is led to the platform. The dwarf resists, but when it looks at the robed creature, it just goes limp and moves forward mindlessly. So we're starting to get a bit of a more sinister implication as to what this creature might be. Right. And at this point, you know, I'm I'm looking at this aspect of the narrative um, and 
he's doing a pretty good job, I would say, of establishing this sort of multi-layered structure of what's happening down here. You know, because you got a temporary work camp. Uh, it's been described by that as that fairly verbatim a couple different times. So you're expecting, okay, there's some level of military uh, inhabiting this part of the cavern. So you immediately start thinking authority structure, you know, and there's the chain of command is a very military sort of associative trope uh, with something like this. But then you've also got this creepy hooded, uh, you know, hovering off the ground thing. And where that larger, slightly larger Durgar with the two-hander is obviously more stereotypically the the uh, military commander here, there's a level of at least equality, if not supervision, from this mysterious hooded and much taller, therefore obviously not a Durgar itself figure as well. So there's already the questions are starting to pop up in the audience's mind. Who's actually in charge? What is the power structure here? Is this something that the players will be able to play off of each other? Is there inequality? You know, and there's just so much you can do with something. And Mercer already gets your head going that way with basically three or four sentences. Well, uh, and then the uh, dwarf captive uh, um, is comes forward towards the road figure and we see writhing purple tentacles come out from underneath the hood, wrap around the dwarf's head and yank it towards a toothy maw. There's a brief bit of struggling. The, the body of the dwarf goes limp and as the tentacles unravel, the dwarf drops uh, with a hull board in its skull, similar to the goblins that we found earlier, which, you know, just sort of, as soon as we hear that description, we know this is if not the creature, one of the creatures that destroyed the goblin settlement we previously came through. Um, uh, and and for many veteran D&D players, we know what that is immediately as soon as the word purple tentacles came out. But uh, the party, uh, or, or, or Scanlan, uh, seeing this... Uh, you know, sort of start sneaking back. We see the hooded figure and Durgar General walk back towards the barracks, and uh, Scanlan actually follows the captives first. Doesn't head back just yet. Um, and follows follows the captives uh, as they're dragged uh, towards the tent on the western side of town. Uh, from inside, he can hear angry dwarven voices, thuds, and cries of pain. Uh, the guards come out with blood on their weapons, so it seems like they've executed the miners that weren't. Uh, devoured by this creature. At that point, he heads back to his friends and relays what he saw. Yeah, and what what I like about this scene is, I, for, well, there's a couple of things, but I think it points out uh, when you're talking about Dungeons and Dragons, and you, you know, we're we're looking at this as a narrative and storytelling aspect. And I look at this scene, and first of all, narratively, it's a great scene because. There's a very dramatic reveal of, of, of the mind flare. There's a very, there's a lot of information packed into what Scanlan sees here that you can very easily discern and get some idea from how the mind flare is, seems to be controlling things and what happens to the, to the dwarves. And a lot of, a lot of stuff comes out here. But what happens in this scene that, that, or not necessarily what happens, but imagine 
how differently it would have played and how we wouldn't have had this scene if the party and specifically Scanlan hadn't decided to come over and scout. Yeah. And it's the, the importance of the interaction within the role-playing game that allows these really cool narrative moments to come out. Well, and something else that that I want to point out is um, there's no dialogue in this section. Uh, None of the Duragar talk. Uh, The creature doesn't talk. The prisoners, you know, resist, but they don't, there's no spoken dialogue. So nowhere in this uh, description is anybody saying, oh, master or, you know, general or leader or anything like that. But just through the descriptions of the characters uh, in relation to one another and their behaviors, we sort of get this picture painted for us uh, in the words of, you know, the Durgar are subservient to this creature who uses them to get food and is preparing them for war. They have a war leader uh, who sort of commands them, but otherwise they answer to this greater power who just, you know, also happens to rip the brains out of skulls. Um, And if you, and if you're captured by them, either you get your brain eaten or you get stabbed to death. Those are your two options. Well, but he, I think he was pretty clear on his description that the prisoners weren't necessarily executed because he, he specifically made, he made reference to the, the guards come out with uh, blood on their clubs. Um, but at least when I was watching it, my impression was that the prisoners resisted. There was some sort of altercation, which Scanlan couldn't understand because he doesn't speak Dwarvish. Um, and the guards obviously enforced, imposed their will and came out on top. But for me, it felt a lot like what what he was doing was planting another hook in the camp. You've got these these more or less tacit allies because we've just come from a dwarven city where these miners are from, and we're in the employ of one of their uh, their authorities. And now we've got some miners who are being captured by, uh, you know, because at this point, the the group sort of has a, a narrative choice. Do we want to confront this monster right now or do we want to try and avoid that sort of confrontation and just go after wherever we can find Kima may have gone? Um, but by ferrying most of the prisoners off after one of them has had his brain eaten, that's kind of a narrative equivalent of putting an hourglass on the table and saying, you know, yeah, you guys have the opportunity to bypass this, but people are going to get eaten over a period of time, and they're currently being mistreated by their captors, so if you're cool with that being on your conscience... But if you're not, you know, and the, and it puts the the choice in the because, hook there, uh, which is interesting because I read it as, oh, we don't need these guys anymore. We're going to be getting more food later. Kill them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that might also be how the players read it because I don't think they ever go back to try to rescue them. No, yeah, I can't remember no, if they do or no, not. They don't. Yeah, they don't. I mean, definitely um, not in this episode. But uh, but. I think that's sort of the point there is that it is ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll, because the players never 
because to be honest, it was at the time at least a little bit of an insurmountable challenge until this progresses. It was one of those situations where the players are in sort of an impossible t- situation, and yeah. those those points where you have to make you have to make one of those impossible choices tend to be really good ones for storytelling reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so Scanner returns and describes what he saw to the rest of the party. Uh, Tiberius consults his books and discover, and you know, basically figures out that it's a mind flayer or an illithid. Um, uh, after learning that it isn't very tall, despite an inaccurate account by the short gnome, uh, Grog is all for fucking it up, basically. Uh, Vex urges caution. Um, Grog basically shrugs that off. Uh, Kaleth recalls a fable she heard as a child of creatures called illithid that will take your mind. Uh, usually not solitary, but kept company with a colony. Um, uh, to which Grog responds that we use the landscape to our advantage, uh, which is apparently his thought of the day. Um, using his suggestion, the party comes up with a plan to cause a distraction in the camp. Vax acting as bait and Tiberius using his deck of illusions will lure the Doragar out and the Illithid towards the crevasse. Keyleth will cast hallucinatory terrain, hoping that they'll be fooled into thinking the ground is solid for an extra 40 feet and fall down to the lava below. If it fails, once their main camp is on the bridge, Grog will cut the rope on the bridge, basically. Uh, Keyleth casts her spell. Vex and Tiberius make their way across the bridge. Once on the other side, Vax, uh, Vax clicks his boots of haste and starts yelling insults into the camp. Tiberius tosses out three cards from his deck, and you, he gets a lich a veteran warrior, and a red-skinned dragonborn. Um, an exact duplicate of Tiberius. Um, apparently this works, and two trolls and an ogre approach the location. <laughs> I mean, it's um, a smart plan. No, it's a, yeah. it's a fantastic plan, yeah. You know, they're um, kid- kiting the enemy. Right. I mean, it's one of their better early plans, to be honest. It is it's probably one, one, of one of their, their most better... effective plans ever. <laughs> yeah. say, it's one of their better plans, period. <laughs> I wouldn't say period, and not not to get too spoiler for people who might be listening and not get caught up, but it's a great plan in how it starts. They just didn't really have great follow-up. Which tends to be the case. Yes, like it was. it's really, really brilliant as, as in terms of the hallucinatory terrain and all that kind of stuff. Once they got past that point, they weren't really sure what to do. Yeah. Uh, so the troll and ogre approach the location. Uh, Vax um, just starts walking backwards and, you know, getting them to follow him. Uh, some Duragar hurl javelins in his direction. The troll, one of the trolls lunges for the lit- lich, uh, but misses as he meets on the air. The second troll goes for the illusion of the veteran and falls out the edge of the cliff. The ogres come after Vax, who's now on the bridge falls off the cliff, as well as another troll and four Duragar. The remaining Duragar begin to suspect something as Tiberius moves back and commands his illusions to follow. The Duragar, who are members of the Elite Guard, feel for the edge of the bridge and begin hacking at the ropes. Both Percy and Vex take shots at the Duragar. Vex misses, and Bad News misfires. Um, and we sort of get a, get a glimpse into uh, the, the trials and tribulations of a gunslinger. Um... Vax pulls out the magic, the carpet flying, and but the bridge gives out beneath uh, his feet. 
<laughs> Vax manages to leap onto it, but he feels a creepy sensation at the back of his head. The illithid has emerged. Vax's awareness fades, his body goes numb, and he begins to fall. Tiberius flies to him, grabs him, and pulls him to safety. The carpet, however, continues to plummet. Percy cleans his gun and fires again at the illithid, knocking it off its feet. It tries to rise, and Percy fires a third time and misses, but the illithid and the remaining Duragar retreat. Uh, Vex looks into the crevasse, hoping to find another bridge. Instead, she sees the carpet entangled in the cut bridge. Tiberius glides down and retrieves the magic carpet. While down there, he sees that a water he sees a waterfall dripping. Or sorry, the waterfall uh, from previous uh, dropping into a pool of water. Back on the cliff, Tiberius suggests they explore. Vex agrees and that they need to continue downward. Uh, Tiberius goes back down. Keyleth and Percy follow on the carpet. The pool of water diverges into several underground rivers. Three vents in the cliffside that have lava pouring out of them, which pools, cools, and hardens when it hits the water. A second, smaller waterfall is also pouring out of the mountain and meeting the river. In the pools are two trolls and the ogres trying to stay afloat. As they watch, one of them gets pulled under the water. Keyleth casts control water and moves some of the water from the pool to cool the lava flows, trying to stop the lava, uh, trying to stop the flow through one of the tunnels and have to go inside, but the effort is too much. So they head back to the others. On their way up, they see a second troll being pulled under the water. So now we've shifted to another scene. Mm-hmm. The 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 bridge is cut, and so I I think that they pivoted very well to this sort of uh, new set in a sense, um, where we're now exploring this crevasse uh, below. Um, as far as verisimilitude go and uh, the the issues before, I would say right here is where Mercer's storytelling takes a little bit of a hit because the continuity doesn't seem to match up with his earlier descriptions. Um, he talks about, as they're flying down, you know, the, the bridge, which we've established is about 250 feet long, is hanging against the cliff, and then the surface of the water is about 150 feet below that, which gives us a total of 400 feet, whereas previously the crevasse was being described as multiple thousands of feet deep. Um, I don't know if that was a change because he wanted the trolls and the ogre to still be alive. I mean, 400 feet still, if you're falling free-falling into water, you're still probably going to be dead. Uh, despite ogre and troll potential physiology. Um, but at the same time, he kind of just brushes past that and gets to the meat of what I think Mercer wanted to focus on in this scene, is that you've got some lava, you've got some water, something's in the water. Mm-hmm. Which... Yeah, I, I I think the the continuity issue with the uh, measurements is more of a oh I never actually thought of how deep this thing actually is beyond just saying a generic num uh, generic sort of insinuation as to it being very very deep. Um, come up with numbers, come up with numbers, come up with numbers here. Um, like narratively that doesn't work if you're writing this, but from his perspective it was more of a I didn't actually have this written down. Um. <laughs> Or it could have easily just been a misstatement, to be honest. Um, For me, me, one of the interesting things here is um, they pivot from camp to crevasse almost immediately. Like, there's no no recoup, regather, okay, what are our options now? What just happened? Do you think we should try it again? It's just, oh, that failed. Oh, look, crevasse. Let's go down. Um, which is sort of an 
uh, I use the term ADD approach to <laughs> uh, to to dungeoneering. Just like, um, and if I were writing this, I would say that that's a part for me that I have issue with because there's no you you have the art you have these you know the the rising action falling action denouement. Um, well, this just went from this went rising action falling action different action with no actual there's no actual okay what did we learn what did we you know un- unpack what we just did now what next they just right, sort of cause... oh new shiny thing go that way mm-hmm. yeah because the circumstances which occurred definitely inform the audience and the the protagonists of things to consider for the future you know obviously the the standing force in the war camp is weakened, so that's something at least in their favor, something to consider there. Vax has just been basically, you know, brain muted halfway across a bridge that was dropping out from under him. That can't be just a n- normal everyday thing for them, at least not at this point. You know, so there should be some, I would say there should be some some reference or some discussion of that circumstance, how that's going to inform his actions going further. Um, you know, and so there's, and that's just two of the things. Then you've, you know, there's other things like Percy can obviously shoot well beyond the, uh, just across the crevasse so there's something to consider if you are going to attempt another assault on the war camp um you know and and things of that nature you know the the monster has been injured he 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 knocked it over so it can be you know it, at this point it bleeds so that's something you know yeah mm-hmm. but there there's no there's no there is no discussion of that it's just right. straight into crevasse mm-hmm. um uh, where was I? Oh, yes. Uh, on the way back up, they see the second troll being pulled into the water. That's where it was. Um, in the water. So now they actually, now they actually sit down and talk a little bit. Um, the denouement that should have been before the exploration uh, happens after it, um, which sort of narratively just sort of the pieces are there, they're just in the wrong order. Um, Vax suggests flying over the encampment, but the others think that they won't be able to get high enough out of the range of the Mind Flayer and the Duragar's ranged weapons. Vax and Keyleth want to continue exploring below, which Scanlan is particularly against, not seeing any advantage to it. Uh, Vex reasons on Scanlan that she can look for tracks, which might lead to Lady Kima's location, which I don't get. I don't understand the logic there uh, from a character perspective or from a literary perspective, um, because the bridge was intact. Lady Kima didn't likely climb down the crevasse. I think it might have been a callback to when the Durgar that they were interrogating said that Lady Kima was below, and so Vex is thinking, just go down as far as you can and then start looking for clues. Well, but and I think you're right. Tactically, it doesn't make a whole a whole bunch of sense. Well, tactically, I believe where they were going off of was um after giving this maybe this may be my perception and I now that I'm thinking about it, don't recall them actually seeing it in the during the episode. But my my assumption of it has always been that them being aware that this is just one layer of this is like the uh, the forward camp, so to speak. 
that mm-hmm. they believe that Kima was further down from there, and um, this would be an alternate way to get past them. So they don't know. They don't know that this is a forward camp. They know that they know that Elithid typically travel in groups, but they don't have any confirmation that there aren't more. Elithid okay, so we in haven't seen the cave at this point. No, no. Yet, okay, no. for all some reason. Okay. All they've Never seen, mind. yeah, all they've seen is the encampment where the Illithid is and the Toragar, and then they also saw, oh, there's a crevasse that the trolls and ogres fell into and some rivers right. down. And they also it saw really... the big opening in the cavern on the other side of the war camp that obviously leads yeah. further wherever. Yes. And and this actually made, this about. actually may tie back into why the description of the crevasse changed. I don't think Matt ever expected them to go down the crevasse. I don't I, I don't I think he had a very clear set of linear directions going as, as GMs often do, you have a very clear one, two, three progression that the players then just ignored. Um, so, but as we're looking at this as a written piece of, right. Of creation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and again, it's like there, it felt more like Vex was, it felt like Vex was trying to justify her curiosity when she's never had to do that before. <laughs> this is true, That's but then fair. again, they've never had like this, this is a party is a moment that... where they where you don't have time to take just indulge curiosity because there is a hostile force that is aware of you on the other side. Yeah. But it's this is this is a group that doesn't justify anything they do, they just do it. As we've established over the past two episodes. <laughs> um uh, so, uh, Grog, tired of all the talking, calls for a vote. Grog, Percy, Scanlan, and Vax want to head towards the Duragar war camp. Keyleth and Vex want to explore the tunnels. Tiberius abstains. Um, so, because they lost the vote, Keyleth and Vex steal the flying carpet and head below. Just such a glorious moment. <laughs> I love that moment so much. And, and this and, is... And, Sorry, go ahead. This and this certain narratively, this serves to counteract the thing Vex was just doing. Again, like Vex doesn't offer re- Vex doesn't justify her actions; she just does, as we see now. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why narratively, previously trying to go, well, maybe I can look for tracks, doesn't make sense in any way, because um, that's just not from what she has established and what she just now proves that's not really her character at this point. Yeah. Um, no, I agree with you there. You know, Vex is like we we've talked about already. The twins are both impulsive, you know, mm-hmm. and, and as far as which one of them is holding the trophy at any given moment, it goes back and forth. Um, but at this point, you know, yeah, this it's, it's very much more in keeping with Vex's character to say, this is what I want, and when she's voted down, go do it anyway, than exactly. try and necessarily reason with everybody and politic them onto her side to agree with her. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't really require that in order to now, do what she wants. Now, going back to what Jeremy was just saying, yes, this is probably the best moment in this episode. Yes. <laughs> um, For know, a lot of reasons. For, for a lot of reasons, but just the, the moment where the group goes, all right, we're going forward, and Keyleth and Vex go, eh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, and it's... 
there's some great stuff that happens in this scene as a whole, and it plays on something we haven't seen a whole lot of in the first couple episodes. I mean, it it, it happens because whenever you have a group, a large group of an ensemble cast discussing stuff in character, it's going to happen is disagreement, but we haven't had any rise to the point of what I would call party conflict. Right. And party conflict is, it can be, if it's handled wrong in D and D, it can be, it can be a killer. Um, if it's, but in narrative storytelling, it's such an important thing because putting the characters at opposite uh, uh, perspectives really allows you to juxtapose the characters off of each other, reveal more about the relationships between the characters, uh, the characters themselves, and sort of drive forward the storytelling in a way that you might not be able to justify all of the characters just agreeing to it. Plus it gets boring when all the characters just agree on everything. Yeah. Cause if all the care, if all the characters in a group constantly agree with each other, then you only need one of them to right. keep telling the story, you know? Exactly. Um, uh, but it, it really, I, that's what made it. Plus the fact that they basically just say, fuck it, let's do it. And, the oh my god that, factor of that is great. Yeah, which is something that the girls especially don't do nearly as much as some of the other characters. So it was really awesome to see. You know, this is this is like the 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 crowning moment of Bechtel test achievement uh, for the <laughs> yes, for, um, for this episode. Oh my god, it really is. So, move, stepping one step beyond that, yeah. um, the boys all just sort of stand at the edge of the cliff and shrug very not concerned with what's going on. Um, which I, I don't know if we have any evidence to the contrary yet in uh, to Vax's Vax's personality. I don't I, I don't recall if there's much in the way of him being super protective and guarded about his sister yet. Um, but as his personality evolves later on, this particular action becomes fairly incongruous. Um, yes. with the rest of his personality because he proves later at least in the series i don't know if he's done it yet that the most important thing in his life is his sister's safety and well, that's for her scaling. to just yeah Sorry. well well for her to just throw herself into the unknown with that being a personality aspect of his doesn't seem like he would take that calmly so it's it's incongruous Considering that there's a lot that went before this, but if we are just considering what we we as the viewer have seen, I don't think it is that much because what we've seen of this so far, Vex has never been at risk. So he's in a position to feel a certain level of confident that she's going to be okay no matter what. As time goes on, he gets a lot more. He shows that protective nature a lot more. Yeah. That's in part because the threat scales up significantly. That's well, fair. and as you're looking at this situation as well, there's no imminent threat down in the crevasse yeah. at this point. I mean, you know, from a from a meta awareness perspective, you know, there's something in there that's apparently, you know popcorn shrimping trolls and ogres so that's kind of freaky um but i think everybody was 
was much more concerned about um you know how much time is being wasted with this argument that most of them don't really feel that strongly about um but yeah with with vax's vax's bent towards that very protective nature and knowing what we know about him later in the series it was kind of surprising that he wasn't grabbing that endless rope and throwing himself down the the bridge and trying to to clamber his way down in the crevasse to to follow Keyleth yeah. and Vex, honestly. Um, so uh, Keyleth parts the water flow coming out of one of the tunnels, revealing another tunnel below. Uh, Keyleth changes into a panther, and the two of them stealth into the cave. Tiberius had flown down after them and takes the carpet back up. So because Tiberius has been showing a... Um, and I don't know whether this is a player or a character thing, but if we're since we're treating this as a as a written work of fiction, I'm going to say the character has been basically pushing his way to the front pretty much this entire episode. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it there even when the the rest of the group is is pushing for something that fits much more their talents than his he's all but demanding to be allowed in the spotlight at the same time. And this was for me, the, the most obvious and apparent moment when, you know, he, he basically goes down to be an asshole. And that's really the only reason it's not like they needed the carpet up top. Did they? Yeah, no, no, they did. That's why he was he was going down to get the carpet to bring it back to the top so that everybody else could come down. Because there was no other way down for everybody else. But they don't come down. Right. Yeah, they then don't come down. But <laughs> That's the thing is that only, the, that only I, works if they actually, and I don't think they actually discuss, well, I'm getting the carpet so I can bring, so we can go down. I think, it was, I, uh, I believe, there believe was it was just Tiberius went, oh, I'm taking the carpet. Boom. Yeah, no, I, I believe there was mention of potentially following after them, but then nobody cared enough to follow after them. <laughs> I'm pretty certain is how that went out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so so in that case, it's establish your character's motivations for their actions clearly if you're yeah. going to have them take an obviously dramatic action. Yeah. <laughs> Or just a dick action in this case. Right. <laughs> or just you a know, dick right. action. Or if it's a dick action, make it clear that, yeah, this character, kind of a dick. Yep. Oh. Uh, um, Vex in the tunnel finds scratch marks and dwarven footprints in the mud, uh, but it's only about 20 feet deep. Uh, they also find skeletons, partially decomposed bodies, and what looks like a pile of rags in the corner. Scanlan, back up top, remarks, they're not going to find anything. Uh... Vex slowly ventures farther into the alcove, uh, and what she thought was a pile of rags turns out to be an unmoving humanoid figure curled into a ball. The figure rouses, startled. It's a scarred, filthy, desperate illithid. Uh, Keyleth tries to befriend the creature unsuccessfully. Uh, Vex takes over the negotiation, offering revenge. This interests the illithid named Clarota, and he agrees to meet their allies. When Tiberius reaches the top, uh, Grog is adamant that the girls handle whatever they... Yeah, see, this is where it happens. Uh, Tiberius gets back to the top with the carpet and Grog is basically saying, nope, they went down there. <laughs> uh, they went down there so they can handle it. Um, and then uh, Vex calls to Tiberius to send the, send the carpet back down and Tiberius responds with, everyone's being buttholes. 
you know, uh, I think I'm pretty certain Tiberius made it clear that he was going, he was basically going to be, uh, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go get the carpet back so we can follow them since they decided that we were going to go down that way. And then everybody else was like, eh, no. <laughs> um, and Clar- Vax is the only one who steps up enough to be like, stop jacking my sister's wheels. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so, no, sorry, Vex tells Tiberius to send it back down, not Vax. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, Vex does. Vex okay. calls over the, over the earpiece. Right. Uh, Clarota rides the carpet back up to the crevasse, and when they reach the top, the others are extremely alarmed to see what's with them, but Vex calms them down. Clarota discusses what has happened in the Underdark and his motives of the party, uh, basically saying that um, he, has been, he has been cast out uh, from the other Illithids in the Underdark, and that he wants revenge for this casting out. Um, and that is where they end the session. Um, right, I want to talk a little bit about the metaphor of Clarota's cave. Because okay. to me, Ooh. watching this again, it was it struck me as very autobiographical. Um, you know, they, they talk about how in the description, you know, that the cave is more or less clawed out of the loose rock by hand. It's very, very narrow and hardly makes any progress at all and just dead ends almost as soon as you walk inside. It's the only things within there are a couple of dried out skeletons. Um, And, you know, this is, I feel like it's an, it's a wonderful metaphor for the entirety of Clarota's, the character's existence at this point he's at the end of his rope he's got a he's dead-ended in his entire existence having been cast out of his hive and forced to live a solitary life when it's already been established that mind flayers are not solitary by nature he's haunted by his past and the loss which i would say is are very clearly symbolized by the skeletons scattered throughout this you know makeshift dwelling that he's made for himself um you know and when you get to the end all that is there is an almost dead more or less hunched up beleaguered illithid wrapped up in his own rags of his previous existence yeah no yeah no that's absolutely Uh, but also with that it doesn't try to oversympathize him. I mean, those skeletons yeah. are there for a reason. Yeah, because he ate them. Yep. I mean, so I it also find doesn't, it doesn't take away from the monstrous and the potentially very concerning nature about bringing somebody like that within the into the group. Mm-hmm. So for me, I read it in a different direction. I read okay. it more as foreshadowing. All right. Um, and basically the idea that you've crawled into a very dangerous and deadly place and at the dead end is a monster. That like, works as well. It's more like, uh, for me, it was more like you, you literally, you have dug too greedily too deep and here is your reward. <laughs> um, a, you know, here is the thing that you find at the end of your 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 conquest for information. Uh, Keyleth and Vex were so determined to find something useful at the bottom of this crevasse to justify their ignoring the rest of the group and going down there 
that it didn't matter. It could have been a Kraken and they would have tried to bring it back up. Um, like this, there's, you find a dirty mud filled skeleton body filled hole. And in it is the thing that put those bodies there. And you invite it into your party mm-hmm. to just no, valid as well. The actions you just took. And I find it more like more foreshadowing than anything else. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I don't think I think like it's an interesting read to see the tunnel as being about Clorota, but I'd rather I I rather imagine that the tunnel is about uh, Keyleth and Vex. Can it be both? I, it could easily. It could yeah. easily be both. That's that's the way. I, I had works. professors who tried to tell me that like a metaphor can only be a metaphor for one thing, and I was like, "Your no. professors were wrong." That's what I thought. That's no, what I like, thought too. <laughs> meta- a metaphor is what you read into the situation. It's not what the situation says. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, best, a lot of the best metaphors and a lot of the best art is the stuff that. Seven people look at, and you get at least six different responses. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yep. no, absolutely. So, yep. we've reached the end of the episode. Um, I find that this one's a little... So, sort of, the first episode was really good. The second episode was okay. This one, I feel like, is sort of fluctuating up and down in the okay scale, just like the second one. There are bits that I really liked. There are bits I didn't like so much. But even in the bits I didn't like so much, they then connected to something that I liked a lot. Like I like I didn't I didn't care so much for uh, um, the bargaining aspect of the trying to justify going to the crevasse, but I did enjoy going into the crevasse. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't care so much for the uh, oh well that threat walked away, so let's immediately change subject to something else. But that something else led to an interesting set of circumstances. Yes. Um, so. Uh, I think the Duragar interrogation was the beginning of it was kind of rushed, but the end of it was really fun. So this one's been sort of a fluctuating roller coaster of good, bad, okay, decent, good, bad, okay, decent for me. Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah, for, for me, I would say a similar evaluation, um, especially the, I mean, cause like once again, they took an interminable time in my opinion to plan how they were going to try and lure the, uh, the Duragar out of the camp. And then it started out, pretty well um and you know so and percy's long-range shot knocking the illithid on his ass was kind of the exclamation point but you know like but it it, but it started so slow that it would if this was a book i would have gotten lost before i actually got to the cool bits you know yeah for me i i have to look at it two different ways like every like every episode on i'm looking at it from a D&D standpoint, and I'm looking at it from a, from a entertainment aspect, uh, narrative storytelling, what, basically what we talk about. From a D&D aspect, I didn't love this episode uh, for a lot of different smaller reasons in terms of the amount of, like you got, some of what you guys said, the amount of time that it gets hung up in gameplay. Um, there's a little bit, we didn't talk about it too much, but there's a little bit of metagaming that goes on here. Um, some other things that I just really didn't dig it from that aspect, from a narrative storytelling point, this was, 
I liked the previous two ones. This is the one that really hooked me in. Yep. Because it was it was the party conflict, which I always which I'm I'm a sucker for. Um it was the introduction of a, a character like Clarota, who is a traditional villain as a potential ally. I'm always down with that. I'm always down with anything that potentially subverts these tropes and these sort of stock characters. Everybody who's played D&D knows what a mind flare is. Everybody in D&D knows that if you find a mind flare, you kill it or you run. There, those are your two options. They chose option three, and it made for something far more interesting. It made me really curious to see where it was going to go from there. So, like, I would give it a, a middling rating as in terms of a D&D session, but I would give it actually a fairly high rating as a narrative. Cool. All right. Well, that has been episode three of Critical Role uh, and of Critical Thinking. Um, um, we hope you guys enjoyed it. And as always, we appreciate any and all feedback. Um, next week, we'll be uh, heading episode four, Attack on the Durgar War Camp. <laughs> and we have been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out on our website at finalshowfilms.com. You can also check us out on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms and on our website at I already said that. I, I, <laughs> I, I do these things so much. I one slip up and it'll just screw me Completely up. It all falls apart. Um, it's all screwed yeah, from there. Yeah, you can support us financially on the Patreon page with a monthly donation if you do if you so choose. Uh, we appreciate all of our patrons, especially our twenty five dollars supporters, Chris Comfort and H. Tonic. And you can support us with a one time donation on our website using the PayPal donate now button. We appreciate all of you that do that. Just click on it, and the money goes uh, directly to that. Um, thank you all very much for supporting us. You can also find this podcast and others like it on forumania.com. Uh, Jeremy, please give us that spiel and remember be inclusive. Yes, or I get the whip again. <laughs> 401mania.com. We are a pop culture site that appeals to pretty much everybody. If you've got a passion for something pop culture, to be honest, movies, television, music, video games, wrestling, mixed martial arts, a little bit of comic books mixed in there. And now D and D actual plays and reviews and all sorts of interesting stuff. So check us out. Yep. Uh, yeah, please go check them out. We appreciate them for letting us put this stuff up there and we appreciate you for listening to it. So thank you all. And until next time, have a good week. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye.